Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure they are in right relationship with the Lord. We are to walk by means of the Spirit, walk according to the Spirit, but when we sin, we are walking according to our sin nature. To recover, we simply admit or acknowledge our sins, and instantly we are restored to fellowship, to that ongoing progression towards spiritual maturity. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to focus our attention upon your word, to let the truth of your word stabilize our emotions, focus our thinking, get us oriented to eternal truth and away from the things that are going on in the world around us, whether it is the small things that are taking place in our individual lives, whether they are good or whether they are difficult, and also for the things that are taking place in our nation. Father, this nation is deeply divided along many different lines. The only solution is the biblical solution. What gave us unity in the past was that a large majority of this country operated on a biblical worldview, a Judeo-Christian worldview, but today they are divided. And very few, even among evangelical Christians, even understand what a biblical worldview is. And Father, we pray that, the, that there might be a shift, that there might be an opportunity to give the gospel to people, that unfortunately so many so-called evangelical churches have false teachers in their pulpits, and they have attracted large followings because of their entertainment. And Father, the truth of your word needs to overshadow the emotionalism, the entertainment, the shallowness that is rep, that has become a representative of Christianity. Only a deep change, a transformation, as Paul talks about in Romans 12, 2, that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So tonight, as we focus, help us to think through this chapter, understand what is going on in terms of the narrative and the implications and significance of this. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 
We'll go through this chapter this evening. It's the lead up to David's grief over Absalom. And what we see here that is exemplified, and you have to dig a little bit and think through the narrative a little bit, is that it's God's will versus David's will. God's will is for Absalom to die. God's will is for Absalom to be defeated, for the rebellion to be quashed, and his will is for ultimately for another son other than Absalom to be the king through which the line of the Messiah will come. But David is caught up with a lot of emotions, and we see a a David that is not the David we see in uh, the earlier parts of First and Second Samuel. We see a David who is uh, confused, weakened, uh, because he wants Absalom to live, to survive. And so we see this conflict develop in this passage, and that ultimately is why there is such a level of grief on David's part when we come to the, uh, to the end of this, of this chapter. So we basically see a look at David in the background here that isn't the most complimentary. And that is the result of carnality in his life and how it has affected his decision-making ability and his leadership ability. Now, carnality in different ways affects people in different ways. But in David, it has uh, rendered his, his leadership, his spiritual leadership, his moral integrity uh, rather impotent. And so uh, we, we can see that played out in this particular uh, episode. Now, as I pointed out in the previous lessons, this section dealing with the rebellion of Absalom actually goes on uh, through chapter uh, chapter 19 when we get uh, into the grief of David, the after effects of the, of the rebellion. But we've moved through the first six where we saw Absalom uh, begin the revolt in chapter 15, then the scene shifted. Remember, I've said this is extremely dramatic. It takes place over a short period of time, maybe probably less than a week. Uh, Absalom begins the revolt, first 15 verses, then David hears about it. He flees from Jerusalem just as Absalom is beginning to enter into Jerusalem. Uh, David flees up to Kidron Valley. He will cross over the shoulder of the Mount of Olives, and uh, then he will head down uh, to the fords of the Jordan, to the crossing of the Jordan. And uh, when we then we see Absalom entering the Jerusalem. We see the whole drama with Ahithophel, who is the, uh, David's uh, chief counselor, longtime friend, but also the grandfather of Bathsheba. So he is now uh, very upset with David. He wants to get revenge on David because of how he has impacted uh, uh, Ahithophel's family. And he goes over to the side of Absalom, and he gives him good advice. And then uh, Hushai comes in as a secret agent from David. He counters Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel's advice came in two parts, but it was the second part that was uh, significant, calling for an immediate surprise attack on David's camp with a a quick strike into the heart of the camp to to kill David once David is dead. Then they could reconcile the people. Uh, Hushai comes in and says, well, that's just a bad idea, and that will not work, and so here's what we need to do. And uh, his plan was to get a 
to pull the full army of the people of Israel. Now, one of the things you should note through here is the way the writer presents Absalom's forces as the people of Israel and just the people, or, or the Israelites and just the people uh, with David, they, and emphasizing that the people who mostly are, are at least those who are with David, are, are behind him, and he's just referred to as, as uh, the people, as we see in chapter 18, verse 1, David numbered uh, the people who were with him. And so uh, uh, when Hushai informs David, David gathers his people, they move across the Jordan, and then they move north to Mahanaim, which we'll look at in just, just a minute. And there he is resupplied. This sets the stage for the battle, which we're going to look at uh, this evening in chapter, uh, chapter 18. Now, here's a map to orient you geographically. Over on the uh, far left here, we have the Mediterranean Sea uh, in the somewhat center, but center right, we have the Jordan River Valley flowing from north to south into the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is 14, 15 miles to the west of the Dead Sea. We have the route of David marked in red here where he goes down. Uh, Jericho would be located right here, but he goes down the road to the fords of the Jordan, crosses over, and then heads north to a city called Mahanaim. We'll look at its significance in just a minute. So he gets there within a couple of days, and then at the same time, uh, um, Absalom is going to take his forces. He's going to move north uh, down the basic ridge line that extends along the hill country. In the south, it's called the hill country of Judea. In the north, it's the hill country of, of Samaria. And he goes as far north as Shechem along what is called the Way of the Patriarchs, this highway that goes uh, from north to south in Israel. And then he's going to head down, cross the Jordan over to the area of Mahanaim. The, t the terrain here is extremely rugged. You can see it somewhat in, in uh, the shading here of the terrain in this particular map. Uh, it's a heavily forested area then. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has been with me when we've driven through that, that area, but it's, it's very, very rugged. Uh, you have steep hills and valleys, and it's, it's a tough terrain, but at this time, it was covered with a thick forest. So that would make it even more difficult for an, any kind of an army uh, to maneuver, uh, any kind of an or army to engage uh, the enemy. And so when we get to the battle, it's going to be really a, a series of fights and ambushes, uh, small units encountering one another and hitting one another, all the while you have... Uh, Joab, who is David's uh, commander, who is looking for Absalom in order to take him out. So it's a reversal of the plan of Ahithophel, who wanted to go in and just take out David. Joab has the idea that he's just going to go take out Absalom. Once Absalom's out of the picture, then the rebellion will uh, will will fall apart. So this takes the the uh, those under David will come up to this uh, area called Mahanaim, which is in the uh, hill country, really, of Gilead, and it is on the Transjordan, on the opposite side of the Jordan uh, from Shechem. So this is where the battle will, 
the battle will take place. So the location is here at Mahanaim. Mahanaim is a word that means double camp. It is found 13 times in the Old Testament, so it's somewhat significant. And it is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob is returning to the land. If you recall the story, Jacob had outwitted and outfoxed and conned uh, his father Isaac into giving him the double inheritance, the inheritance of the firstborn, uh, away from Esau, his brother. Esau was breathing threats of murder, and so uh, Rebekah, uh, Jacob's mother says, we're going to get you out of here. Go visit your uncle Laban up in Syria. And she packed his his uh, bags for him, and he fled while uh, Esau is breathing threats of, of murder. That's the last time he saw Esau. So when he is coming back 20 years later, think about where you were 20 years ago in the year 2000. So a good bit of time has gone by. But now God has richly blessed uh, Jacob, and he has flocks and herds, and he has two wives and two concubines. He has 12 sons, and he has uh, one one daughter, and he's returning, but he's, uh, he's scared. J- Jacob's never the picture of great faith and trust in God, and he's scared to death, which is what is described in in uh, Genesis chapter 32, verse verse 12. And when he hears that Esau is coming out to meet him, and he's come down from the north, and he stops here at Mahanaim, and he names this area, and uh, there he learns that he needs to trust God. And that is a good background for understanding uh, what needs to be brought out in chapter 18 is that David needs to learn how to trust God instead of trust in his own plan, but he doesn't get it. So Jacob got it. In Genesis 32:7, we're told that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And what did he do? He did what David should have done. He prayed to God. He prayed to the God of his father Abraham, uh, his grandfather Abraham, and his father uh, Isaac. And so the focus of his prayer is very simple. He just prays, Father, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. And so God is going to answer that prayer. It's a perfect example of the faith rest drill. And the way God delivers him is twofold. First of all, God is going to effect a change in Jacob. This is one of the most dramatic events in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 32, uh, 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 Jacob meets this man at night who engages him in a wrestling contest. And, of course, the man is uh, is a uh, theophany, Old Testament representation. It's the second person of the Trinity who wrestles with him and this wrestling goes on, and it's a picture of the fact that in Jacob's soul, he is having a tremendously difficult time wrestling between his sin nature and the fact that he knows he needs to be trusting in God. And so the uh, this is really the angel of the Lord, and this man he's wrestling with whacks him on the hip and cripples him. And so at that point, Jacob realizes who he's wrestling with, and he names the place Peniel, which is, and he says the reason is that there he met God face to face. And the Hebrew word pen is a word for face, 
and Penael means the face of God, for there he met um, God face to face. That's why Camp Penile is named Camp Penile. Is, that's their verse, so the kids will come to camp and meet God face to face. Great story. And so this is what happens, and God changes him, but God has already worked a change in Esau. A lot of people think Esau was not saved because of the passage in Hebrews 12 that a root of bitterness sprung up in Esau, but, but that goes back to what happened 20 years earlier. 20 years has gone by, and God has worked in Esau's life, and God has richly blessed Esau. And so the next day or in the night when, when uh, Jacob is fearful of uh, Esau coming, he starts sending out all these gifts of, of sheep and cattle and everything he can think. Then he's going to put all his wives and children out in front like a true hero, and he's going to come along in the back, you know, women and children first. They'll catch the brunt of Esau's anger. And when Esau gets there, he's just magnanimous. He said, I don't want your presence. God has blessed me. I'm wealthy. I'm rich. I have more possessions than I have know what to do with. You keep your gifts. I'm just glad to see you, brother. And so God has changed both of them in the process. And what we see in that example, when we think of Mahanaim, is this is a place where Jacob learned really to trust in God, and God would uh, would provide for him. So David now is at Mahanaim, and he needs to trust in the will of God, and he wants to trust in his own will and his own plan. And so that's kind of a backdrop theological lesson, practical lesson from this episode. Uh, remember Second Timothy uh, three sixteen and seventeen says that the word of God is is the that the scriptures, all scripture, are breathed out by God and profitable first for teaching. So all Scripture is designed to teach us something and to uh, reprove us and to correct us and instruct us in the way of righteousness. And unfortunately, in most of this section of Second Samuel, from Second Samuel 11 uh, down through, through about 19 or 20, we see a negative lesson when we look at, at David. So when we look at this first verse, first two verses we read, And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. So there's a couple of things going on in this verse that we ought to pay attention to. First of all, if you're familiar with what's going on in the life of David and what's going on in Second Samuel, is we know that there's going to be another major sin in David's life that comes up in Second Samuel chapter 24. And when we get there, what we discover is that David is going to do the same thing that he does here. He numbers the people. And this is a sin. And God is going to punish him and the people for that sin. But it's interesting to look at the language that's here, and we'll get to this again when we get to chapter 24, but just to give you a little preview, here we have the word pakad for numbered. This is a really interesting word. It's used quite a bit in the Old Testament. In fact, it's used 
over 300 times, and it has a range of meanings. In fact, one uh, Old Testament scholar says, quote, there is probably no other Hebrew verb that has caused translators as much trouble as pakad. So it, this is not always the simplest thing. It has this huge range of meaning. It means to prescribe, to seek out, to scrutinize, to miss, to be present, to make a careful inspection of something, to check it out, to look over, to pass in review, and to muster. And that's from the Hebrew-Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. So you can see, how do you go from prescribe to muster, from miss to make careful inspection? And so you, you have a lot of words. Even in English, we have words that have a wide range of meaning, and you really have to understand the context to understand what the word means. Think of the word trunk. T-R-U-N-K. What's the definition? Well, it could be a large piece of luggage or storage, the, a, a trunk for uh, keeping clothes in or for traveling with. It could refer to the rear of a car when you, where you store things and you have a spare tire. It could refer to a trunk line, which has to do with a, a major line of electrical uh, connections related to, could be telephone, could be power, uh, you know, a huge cable that carries a number, number of wires. It could be the nose of an elephant. So the, and there are many other definitions of trunk. So we have words like that in English as well that have multiple meanings that, that don't seem to have um, much to do with one another. So this word has to be analyzed in terms of, of its context. And the context here is that David is looking at his army. And so the one area of meaning here uh, has to do with uh, the military. The New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis takes one whole breath to say that, says the basic meanings are to attend to, to take note of, to care for, to punish, to enroll, to record, to assemble, to avenge, to account, call to account. But in their breakdown of the analysis, the writer says over one-third of all occurrences of pakad in the Old Testament are found with a technical meaning in association with military or taxation censuses about 121 times. And in military context, pakad takes on an even more specialized meaning, the process of assembling, counting, ordering, organizing men for battle, and may be appropriately translated as muster, assemble, or array. So what we have here is David musters the people. He's going to organize the army, the military, and he does this into three basic uh, brigades or battalions or whatever their number was. He sets up the first category is thousands, sets up captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, and according to uh, Jewish tradition, an army 
was composed of, of about 10,000. Now, he doesn't have 10,000 with him. Uh, he is going to be outnumbered by Absalom, but he's going to divide them into thirds, uh, according to verse 2. So the, he's going to send out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, and one-third under the uh, mercenary leader Ittai the Gittite. So that's what it means when we see that he is numbering the people. Now what's interesting, just to give you a preview of coming attractions, when we get to 2 Samuel 24.1, God says, go number Israel and Judah. But the word that God uses for number there is not pakad. It is the number meneh, which has to do with counting or appointing something. But it really is a synonym because when David uh, does this, he says, um, God continues to say, or David says, now go th- gives this order to his people. He says, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people. And there David uses the word pakad, and that I may know the number of the people. And there he uses a different word, mispar, which is from the root safer, which is usually to record something, but it has the idea of counting. That's the root meaning, and scribes would count the letters. So it has to do with numbers in this sense, and so we'll get to the issues there when we arrive at Second Samuel 24. But here, this is the idea of of assembling his men, organizing them, and getting them prepared for the combat. So he has uh, he's following basically the same approach, the same organization that uh, his army had um, when they were organizing for battle at Rabat Amon in chapter 11 where Joab is the main commander. He has the main army, the standing army. We talked about that earlier, that in Israel you had the standing army, and then you had the reserves that would be called up from all the tribes, and then you had some uh, some uh, mercenaries. And so what he does here is he takes the, the main army, the standing army, and that is under Joab's command, and then he takes... Uh, another third and puts them under Avishai. These are the reserves, and this is his backup uh, backup army if Joab gets in trouble. And then he has the, 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 the third segment, the, the mercenaries. Now, these are the professional soldiers, and these are the ones who have been, many of them have been with him for a long time. They have a lot of experience, and this is really uh, the solid part of his army. If they fail, the battle's going to be lost. And so he brings them in, Ittai the Gittite. And remember, you have the men from Gath, the Philistines from Gath, and a person from Gath is called the Gittite. And so you have this, this uh, part of his group are the Philistines from Gath who are loyal to David. And these are mostly made up of men who have converted to uh, Israel, to uh, to the Mosaic Law, and they have become proselytes. You have a second group called the Carathites and a third group called the Pelethites. And uh, these three groups make up uh, this part of his army. They are the strength and the foundation of David's army, really, because they are the professional uh, soldiers. Now, 
David then comes along, and the last thing he says in verse 2 gives us an idea of, of, of David's motivation. He says, I also, also will surely go out with you myself. Now, what's his motivation? Is his motivation to lead the people? No. His motivation is he wants to protect Absalom. He has been an overly indulgent father, and here he has this this son who's an adult son. By this time, Absalom is close to 40, and he is leading a major revolt against David, and all David wants to control is the battle and make sure that Absalom survives. Now, we know that that is not God's plan. God is not going to... uh, allow Absalom to survive. Back in 2 Samuel 17, 14, we have an editorial comment after Hushai has given his advice to Absalom and Absalom and all the men of Israel with him. There again, we have that term, men of Israel or people of Israel identifying uh, Absalom's troops and his leaders. And they all think that Hushai's advice is better than the advice of Hithophel. And then starting with that sentence, for the Lord, this is where the writer, having told what has happened, now inserts the divine interpretation of this historical event. That's how Hebrew narrative works. You have the writer tells you what happens, and then at the end, somewhere in there, he'll make these statements, usually introduced by four, to tell you what God is doing. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. And the word that is translated disaster is a word ra'ah, which indicates something evil, something harmful, or something destructive. Again, it's a broad word, so we have to look at at the context, and it's just foreshadowing that that at this point, we, the reader of this drama, know that it's not going to turn out well for Absalom. When we get there, we see that Absalom dies, which is obviously the will of God. So the point here is that the uh, narr- narrator or the storyteller is telling us under inspiration of the Spirit is God intended for Absalom to, to lose and to die. Absalom was out of control. He had uh, had his brother Amnon murdered. He had committed uh, rape with his, the concubines, violation of the Mosaic law and all the other standards of Israel. He has led the nation in rebellion against God's anointed Uh, God never had Absalom anointed as the heir of of David. And so God is going to take Absalom out of the picture at this point. But David doesn't want that to happen. This is the underlying conflict in this, this whole section. And this is what is setting David up for such intense grief at the end of the, uh, at the end of the chapter, which we won't get to until the beginning uh, next, next week. But in verse 3, we see that the people answered. The people answered. Now, this is interesting because it's not unlike a situation that occurred uh, back in uh, 1 Samuel 
where the uh, remember Saul had had ordered that no one eat or drink until they had defeated the Philistines in the battle, uh, which was a, a foolish command because the men needed their energy. They needed to drink. They needed to be hydrated. Uh, Israel can be a dry land. We don't know what time of year it was, but people needed the soldiers would need water and they would need to be uh, have food for energy. And it was Jonathan and his armor bearer that really turned the battle at that time. But when the word got back to to uh, to Saul, Saul learned that they had eaten of honey along the way, and so he was going to execute them because of his foolish vow, and the people intervened. So these are a couple of examples where the people are really represented the voice of God. There's an old Latin phrase, the voice of the people, the voice of God, Vox populi, vox dei, and in this case, that is true. It is not always true. That is not true of a democracy right now. We have the voice of the people, and they are, uh, many people are uttering inanities. And uh, I'm not going to get off into that, but that's because they don't operate on a biblical or Judeo-Christian worldview. I don't care how much verbiage, Christian verbiage, they throw around like this uh, woman who is the bishop, which is a disobedience to the Word of God all the way through, of St. John's Episcopal Church, which is called the President's Church, which is across the street from the White House. And yesterday, of course, there was a press conference where President Trump went over there. There's a lot of stuff in the news about all of this. And uh, she came out and makes this inane statement today about how nothing he did reflected Christianity. Well, the irony of it is her very presence as a bishop is a violation of the Word of God, and nothing she said was consistent with a biblical understanding of the role of a government leader to protect and preserve the property rights of the people and the lives of his people. And that's exactly what President Trump was doing. And this woman is just a the face of the abomination that this nation has gotten into because of their rejection of the Word of God and the fact that they have embraced uh, paganism. They have rejected God's plan for men, God's plan for women, God's plan for families. And as a result of that, they are bringing this nation to a point of collapse all the way around. So uh, this is the same kind of thing that, that Saul was doing. He, by his uh, evil he was, and his foolishness, he was bringing the nation to a, a, a point of collapse. And so the people here, in contrast to the people now, the people here represent the, uh, are, they, they, they understand the value of David that without David, the nation will not survive. Without David, they will not have the security, they will not have the stability that is required. Absalom did not have a framework with the Word of God or a relationship with God, and these people who are with David understand that David is more important uh, to leading from the rear than leading in front where his life would be in danger. Now, David isn't thinking about that. He just wants to protect little old Absalom from getting in trouble. We'll see why I call him little old Absalom in a little while. Uh, So the people said, you shall not go out, for if we flee away, they won't care about us. So you see, they understand reality. 
that they really are not that important. The one who is important is David. They say, if half of us die, will they care about us? No. But you are worth 10,000 of us now. That is considered the number of an army, a full army in uh, Israel. Traditionally, is 10,000. For you are now more help to us in the city. So they recognize that David is completely out of line, wanting to be on the front line and leading the troops. And so they want him uh, to stay uh, to stay behind. They recognize that his value is irreplaceable for the victory, and they are there willingly to sacrifice their lives so that David can live. Now, we're going to come back to this, but when David is expressing his grief, what does he say? Oh, I wish that I had died in, instead of Absalom. What a slap in the face to all of his soldiers. And they heard him say it. And so this is, is just uh, rejecting their loyalty. It was an insult to his people. He almost lost the kingdom at that point if it hadn't been for Joab. But we'll get there uh, next week. So David uh, recognizes that, that they, are, uh, they, ha- they have a firm position. They, are more, are, they recognize that he is more valuable uh, than they are and that he needs to stay behind. Now we look at verse 4. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Does that sound like a strong leader? No. It shows, uh, it indicates a weakness on David's part. He, he really wants to go to save Absalom. If he wanted to go because it would strengthen his position, strengthen the army and give them victory, then he would have stood his ground. But he knows they're basically right but he doesn't like it, and so he's just wishy-washy, and he says, okay, if that's what you want to do, I'm going to do it. So then he's going to stand by the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. So this is the people going out and basically go, passing in review uh, b- before the king. And this is an important concept here because it states that he is stood by the gate. The gate in these ancient cities was not just a small uh, small architectural feature. They had uh, huge blockhouses there. They had places where guards would uh, hang up their equipment. There were usually four or maybe even six uh, towers uh, if you go to some of the remains of some of these uh, cities like Megiddo, you'll see that you'd have an initial gate that had four guard towers. You would go through that. It would be maybe half the size of this group of chairs. You go through that, and then it makes a right turn, and then a left turn, and goes through another big gate. Why? because it would prevent an enemy from charging straight through the gates and into the city. Now, what would happen in these, because they had these large rooms, this is where the city council would meet. This is where the local leaders would meet, where the court cases would be adjudicated, things, things of that nature. And so David stands out there, and as the uh, people come out in very organized fashion, uh, he is re- reviewing them. And so as we look at this and we read this phrase, all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands, 
it would probably miss most of us if we looked at this, but there's an earlier place where this happens, and that is in 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 2. And this describes the Philistine army as it goes out in preparation for battle at Mount Gilboa, which is where Saul dies. So, so the last time we saw this phrase, those that went out, um, went out by hundreds and by thousands were on their way to a victory. So there's foreshadowing taking place here. The writer reuses that phrase because it foreshadows that, oh, the last time we saw this, the army that did that won. This army is probably going to win. It indicates that they are organized, that they are uh, disciplined. It indicates that they have experience. And, of course, they are ultimately led by David, but by Joab, who has a tremendous amount of experience, as well as Abishai, and Ittai the Gittite. In contrast, you have Absalom, who's never been in a battle. His, his army has never been vetted. His army, even though there are veterans there from uh, the previous wars of David, uh, they're not fighting with their same units or with their same leaders. So they're basically an untested group. They're, they don't know exactly what they are doing. And so the, uh, the, the foreshadowing here is that they're not going to, uh, Absalom's going to be defeated by these well-organized troops. And then David is going to have a little private council with his three commanders. Verse 5, Now the king had commanded Yoav, Avishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now he uses this word na'ar. Na'ar is a word you would use with a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or maybe a 25-year-old who really hasn't accomplished very much or done anything. And so it indicates that he is he's treating Absalom like a boy. Absalom is his favorite. He loves Absalom. He, he's always spoiled Absalom. He never disciplined Absalom. We'll see that come out a little later on as we go through this. And so he... He tells us, oh, keep my boy alive. Don't kill him. Don't let anybody kill my boy, my poor little Absalom. Don't let anything happen to him. And this is a 40-year-old man who has split the nation and is leading a revolt against his father, King David. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So everybody knows this, and everybody else is going, we've got to kill this guy. Absalom is the enemy. We have to take him out. See, there's times when you have to have battle courage to destroy the enemy. And we live in a time right now with all these riots going on around us right now, and I think that, that too many leaders, including the president, have restrained their hand. They should have been using... And when, I was, when I came out of teacher's college, I went to Stephen F. Austin, when I, one of the things they taught us is when you go into a fresh class... You need to be strict in your discipline, harder than normal, the first six weeks, because that establishes your authority and you're in control. You can lighten up after that, and that works. But if you start off wanting to be their friend and taking it easy instead of being tough, then you can't regain control. And so David always was easy on Absalom, and Absalom was spoiled and Absalom um, was, became out of control. 
And see, this is what's happened, I think, in this country. You have a lot of mayors and a lot of governors who just wanted people to, okay, they're upset legitimately and they're demonstrating and they're peaceful. But once they started destroying property, there's no excuse for that. There's no excuse for the looting. There's no excuse for burning cars or attacking the police whatsoever. And they should have immediately started using tear gas and rubber bullets and really stomped down on this and stopped it. But they let it go for two or three days, and now we're into like six or seven days of this, and it is absolutely horrible to look at all of the property damage. And it, it is absurd, so much property damage to to a lot of minority businesses. I mean, there's no rationality. And uh, even the liberal media is beginning to report that, that most of the agitators that are causing this have been brought in from out of state, and they are paid. And there were two that were arrested in New York yesterday, and ABC News couldn't believe it. This morning had a profile of both of these people, had their pictures. They had both gone to law school. They were both lawyers, and they both had rap sheets that were as long as your arm because they had been arrested numerous times agitating for this kind of of activity, looting and and property destruction in various, various riots. And so uh, once that happens, you have to stop it. It's not nice, but you have to do it. Now, the people here understood that. Absalom cannot be treated with a kid glove. Absalom may be the king's favorite. It may be the king's son, but Absalom has to die. And this will play out as we go through the story. So the, verse 6 says, So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. Notice the people, that's David's army, went against Israel. That's Absalom's army. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. And so this is part, uh, Ephraim is usually a term for the ten northern tribes, but it's also applied to those who are in the Transjordan area. And so this is a, a heavily, heavily wooded area. Now, people go there today, and they look at a lot of this area in Samaria and this area across the Jordan, and there's very few trees there. It's dry and it's barren, and for decades the Jewish people have been replanting trees. And, but it, it didn't look barren back when David was there. And you know why? How did it get barren? It got barren because under the Ottoman Empire, the law was to ta- pro- the property tax law was to tax every tree on a piece of property. Well, if you didn't want to pay a lot of taxes, then you cut all your trees down. And that deforested much of the land of Israel. And so they have been reforesting it over the last the last forty years, and so it doesn't look anything today in terms of the of the foliage as it did at one time. And in the areas where they're replanting the trees and the forests are coming back, it, it has an impact on on the climate. It has an impact on on the weather and on the um, the humidity and it has an impact on the precipitation. It's interesting how all that works together. I don't know if you remember this, but when many of us were young back in the 60s, there were commercials for various uh, sinus medications, and one of the slogans was to take your sinuses to Arizona. Y'all remember that because Arizona was dry and it wasn't humid. 
but I read a report about 20 years ago that because of the large number of people who have gone to Arizona who have uh, built swimming pools and also because of the uh, dams creating lakes, you know which state, I've already given it away probably, which state in the union has the greatest number of, of boat owners? Arizona because of the large number of lakes. So with all of this extra water that wasn't there 75 years ago, the humidity has gone up about 15 to 20%. So it isn't the dry, arid place it was back when they were saying, take your sinuses to Arizona. Anyway, so what I'm saying is that people can have an impact on the, on the climate, and you build, put in these forests and everything else, and it changed the climate just as destroying those forests also had a negative impact on, on the climate there, uh, there in Israel. So the king uh, comes along in verse 7, we're told the people of Israel were overthrown, that is, people of Israel, that's Absalom's army, they're overthrown there before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. Now, earlier I said a basic army was 10,000, so, so here you have 20,000. This is a huge number that had accompanied uh, Absalom. And, for the, and then the writer says, for the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, that word devoured is an interesting word. What they've discovered in, in uh, archaeological remains of the swords from that time is where there, there was a hilt, where there was a handguard at the base of the, of the blade that it was opened out in a semicircular pattern, and it was called the mouth of the sword. And so when, when you would stab someone, the idiom became the sword devoured somebody. And it's this, this image of, of a mouth grabbing them. And so that's where this, where this idiom developed. And what the picture here is that all over this area, uh, because of the terrain and because of the, the forest, there, there's not one just standing battle. There's multiple engagements and ambushes and fights that are taking place all over these rugged, steep hillsides and in these forests. And so the forces of Absalom are completely disorganized and defeated, and uh, they are just getting wiped out. And then we read about Absalom's death in verse 9. Then Absalom met the servants of David. So he's riding along, and all of a sudden he gets into an ambush. Absalom rode on a mule, and the mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree. So this is the picture here. You have Absalom, who probably had a guard detail, security detail with him. He gets caught in an ambush, and they're fighting, and he's running away. And as he's running away, he's riding his mule. Now, a mule is a very sure-footed animal, as large as a horse. Uh, back, back in the day when I worked as a, um, as a wrangler at Camp Penile in the summers, we had a couple of of very large mules, the kind of mules that would uh, pull wagons, things of that nature, larger than most of the horses we had for, for trail riding. 
And that was the kind of mule that Absalom rode, very sure-footed, and this mule is taking off and running, and he's probably going full gallop. And one of the things I read said that mules have a tendency to to go very close to uh, hillsides or cliffs or to... Uh, or to trees or things of that nature. So he runs under this huge terebinth tree, which is like an oak tree. And then it says, most of you thought he got hung by his hair. Doesn't say that. The Hebrew word is rosh, which means head. And he gets his head caught in the terebinth. So maybe there was a forked limb and it just catches him right by the throat and he's just hung there. Now it hasn't killed him. It didn't break his neck, but he can't get free. And he's just just hanging there. And it's interesting, the phraseology, hanging between heaven and earth. And that invokes, of course, imagery of, of God bringing a judgment. And the mule which was under him just kept going. And so as we read this particular section, uh, starting at about verse Verse 10, then a certain man saw it. Some soldier in David's army goes and he reports to Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. In verse 11, Joab says, you saw him. Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I'll give you 10 shekels of silver, which is a sizable sum, and a belt. Now, what's going on there? Joab is saying, if I kill him, David's really going to be mad at me. I'm going to get this schmuck to go back there and to have him uh, take out take out Absalom. But the man says, no, even if you gave me a thousand shekels, I'm not going to kill the king's son. I heard what he said, and I heard that he told us not to, not to kill him. Verse 13, otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there's nothing hidden from the king. So in other words, what he's saying is, the king's going to find out about it. I'm not going to do it. If you want him dead, you're going to have to to deal with it. So Joab takes off. And then in verse 14, it says, then Joab says, I can't linger with you. I'm not going to, I got to go take care of him before he gets away. And he took three spears. Now, this is another one of those words that has multiple and interesting meanings. Because what we run into here is that there are a couple of word plays. There are a couple of puns that uh, take place here. And whenever you find word plays and puns in the Hebrew, the writer is trying to make a point. And so what he is saying here is, and there's there's this I- imagery that this, these the root meaning of this word shevet is basically a stick of wood or a rod. Sometimes it's a, used to describe a scepter. So again, it has a wide range of meanings. And here it has the idea of a long stick that would be plunged into somebody or a spear. So he takes these three spears in his hand and thrusts them through Absalom's heart. Okay, now he's not quite killed at that point. He's just throwing him through his upper torso while he was still alive. And here you get a, you missed the whole pun. While Absalom is in the heart of the tree, he pierces his him in the heart while he's in the heart of the tree. So he's making a, the writer, the Holy Spirit is making a point here that he's hitting Absalom in the center of his torso while he's in the center of the tree. 
and it just brings our, our focal point here. But this word shevet is one that has a, another another nuance. And you, you might be reminded of two uses of this word in Proverbs 10, 13, and 24. Now, the Proverbs were Proverbs written by Solomon, but they were the Proverbs that were taught him by his father David. And so these Proverbs were not something that were invented by David at the time, but would have been known uh, because they taught wisdom and skill in living the spiritual life in Israel. So there's two interesting uses of Shevet in Proverbs. Proverbs 10.13 says, Wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. So there we would call it a paddle. So that's the same idea in Proverbs 13.24. He who spares his rod, his shevet, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So there is a... You know, this is the way the Hebrew works. You get these little nuances, these little hidden uh, connections through these word plays. That be- and basically the point is, to, as sort of a reminder, that because David spoiled Absalom and, did, and he spared the Shevet, now Joab has to use the Shevet. He has to take Absalom out because of his... Uh, rebellion. He didn't learn anything. He grew up a spoiled, self-absorbed, arrogant man who led a revolt against his father. So it's these, you know, interesting little nuances that you have to pick up as you uh, go through the text. And Joab has a a group of ten men who are called uh, armor bearers, or uh, actually they're they're weapons carriers for him, and they are the ones who ultimately surround Absalom, and they struck and killed him. And at that point, Joab blows the trumpet, indicating victory, because now that Absalom is dead, the armies aren't going to fight, have nothing to fight for, and so uh, the people of Israel are going to flee. And so it recalls the army of David back, and he restrains them from the people. Now, the image here is of Absalom hanging in a tree. Now, that has another biblical image. For example, back in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, we read, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body should not remain there overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So here's Absalom hanging from a tree. This is an image of a man who is cursed by God. And so he is uh, he should be uh, taken down and his body buried immediately, which is what is about to happen. Now, when we look at the next verse that comes up, when we look at verse 17, we read, And they took Absalom, and they cast him into a large pit in the woods, and they laid a very large heap of stones over him. The reason is, is to keep the, uh, the carnivores away at night, those who would be coming along and digging up the body 
and to keep them away. So they piled this heap of stones over him. And then everyone in, in Israel, all Israel fled, that is the armies of Absalom, and they flee to their tent, that is, they all head home. Then in verse 18 we read, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. Now if you go to Jerusalem today and you walk along the, um, uh, the southeastern corner below the southern steps, and you walk along down the Kidron Valley on your way to, the, uh, to Gethsemane, there is a monument there that is called Absalom's Monument. That's not this. That was built after the uh, uh, return from the exile. But th- this is called Absalom's Monument, and it's located, of course, over on the Transjordan side uh, near Mahanaim where this uh, battle took place. Now, the word translated monument in the Hebrew is the word hand, yad, Y-A-D. And it has a literal meaning of hand, but it has an idiomatic meaning of a memorial or a monument. And this is used in Isaiah 56, verse 5, which says, God is speaking, he says, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name. And that phrase in the Hebrew is Yad Vashem. Yad means hand, the V is the conjunction and, and Shem means name. And a name is a place where uh, you have a memorial. And so, the, for example, that this is the name of the Holocaust Memorial, the Holocaust Monument in Israel, and within there, there is a place called the Hall of Names, which is quite impressive, and as you walk in, you look up, and it's this uh, circular uh, area that just rises up, it seems like, to infinity, and all along there, they have inscribed the names of all of those that they discover that were uh, murdered in the Holocaust. So this idea of uh, Yad is, uh, as a memorial is also found in a number of other uh, places in the Old Testament, but, but usually it's translated differently. And I notice with the Holman Christian Study Bible, I know some of the translators and editors, and there are people who are familiar with Yad Vashem and the idiomatic meaning. And so I chose to quote that verse because it, it, it translates it here as a memorial, which is in New King James Version and ASB. Others don't, don't do that. Uh, so it takes somebody who has more of a current contemporary knowledge of, uh, of Israel and who's been there, uh, to translate that that correctly. Now, David is going to be informed of this. And in 2 Samuel eighteen nineteen through 19, 8, we see David informed of the death of Absalom. And then we see David's response. And one of the things we have to remember, and I will remind us of this when we come back next time, is that... The way we mostly think of David, the the portrayal we normally think of David is David as the young shepherd boy, the uh, young man who defeats Goliath. We think of David as the one who is 
the target of Saul's psychotic, paranoid delusions and homicidal aggression for various years as David gathers his mighty men around him and he is constantly chased and persecuted by Saul's army. We think of David as the one who was forced to become a mercenary, uh, hired uh, a hired uh, military leader for the Philistines. We think of David the conqueror. We think of David the composer of the Psalms. We think of David as being spiritually focused and uh, walking close to the Lord. That is the picture we see from when we're first introduced to David back in Second First Samuel chapter sixteen, up through the sin with Bathsheba in in Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter eleven and twelve, and so we I want to remind you that what we see is the organization of the writer of Samuel is thematic. He gives us the positive look of David. But then when we get to this last part of Samuel, he portrays the other side of David. See, that's one of the unique uh, characteristics of the Christian Bible, the Jewish Old Testament and the Christian New Testament, is it presents the heroes of the faith with all of their failures, all of their flaws, all of their sins. But you read in other other religious works, uh, they never say anything bad about their religious leaders. And what God wants us to know is how bad all men are. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God and that our only hope is God's, God's grace and all that God uh, provides for us. I had a fly right on my Bible. Okay, so this last section starting in chapter 13, just shows God's discipline on David for that affair with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. Uh, David is uh, has to deal with all of these deaths in the family. Absalom kills his son Absalom, Amnon, but David doesn't do anything about it. He's just spoiled Absalom. And I, I think that psychologically David is dealing with a lot of guilt, a lot of regrets. He's failed in, in many ways, and if any of you are familiar with people who have had a son or daughter where there have been these kind of conflicts that when that son or daughter dies, there's just a lot of regret. There, there's a lot of mixed emotions. I have a friend whose daughter uh, had childhood uh, cancer, had many, many other problems, and then when she was uh, probably in late teens, she was killed in an automobile accident. And that was a real lesson to deal with the grace of God in all of that and also with these, all these other mixed emotions. And with David, we know that that was just a result of his own carnality, and so he had to deal with that. I think all of that fed into why he had uh, this this great regret. But but before we wrap up tonight, I just want to run through this, what happens at the end. You have a couple of different characters here. You have Joab, who is the head of the army, and he knows that ultimately David has to be informed about the death of his son. You have Ahimaaz, that's how it is in Hebrew, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, the high priest. And Ahimaaz is a priest, and he is so excited. They've won the battle. All he's thinking about is the victory of the battle. We have defeated the, 
the rebels. We have defeated Absalom. I'm going to go tell David. He just wants to give David the good news that they've won. But he's not thinking about how David is going to take this when he hears about the death death of his son. So Joab tries to calm him down, and he says, you're not going to take this news to him today, for you shall take news another day. You'll be a messenger another day, but today, not you. You don't need to be the one that's going to tell David because he doesn't need to associate you with the news of his the death of his son. And so he calls this Cushite. He's, he's, he's not even an Israelite, and he doesn't have a name, and they never name him. Uh, and they say, go tell the king what you have seen. And so the Cushite bows himself to Joab, takes off, and then uh, what happens is uh, Ahimaaz is going to convince Joab to let him uh, go. And so eventually he lets Ahimaaz go, and Ahimaaz is in a foot race with the Cushite, and he's going to outrun him because he takes a level path, whereas the Cushite probably takes the more direct path, but it's more hilly, more rugged, and slows him down so that Ahimaaz is able to pass him. And then when we look at verse 24, we see that David is sitting out by the gates, and he's waiting. Watchman is up in the tower looking to see someone who's coming to tell them how the battle is going. And David is waiting, and then the watchman in verse 25 cries out to the king, and the king says, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. If there's only one, there's one runner, it's a messenger, and he's going to tell us what has happened. And so Ahimaaz draws closer, and then the watchman sees another man running. and says, there's another man alone. And David says, well, he's bringing news. Now, what's interesting here is when the watchman identifies the first one as Ahimaaz, uh, David says, well, he's a good man, so he's going to bring good news. And so there's that expectation that he'll hear something good. And Ahimaaz comes, and he's, he's modified his message. He's not going to answer the message about the death of Absalom. And so he he can't wait to tell him about the victory, Blessed be the Lord God who's delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. And so the king says, well, what about Absalom? What's happened to him? And Ahimaaz tells him, well, when Joab sent, sent me, I saw a great tumult, but I don't know what that was about. And just then uh, the Cushite comes in, and the Cushite says, there's good news, my Lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. So he first reports the victory in the battle. And then the king says, what about Absalom? And the Cushite says, well, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise against you um, to do harm be like that young man. A rather uh, twisted or circuitous route of saying, he's dead like all your enemies should be dead. And then we see David's first expression of his grief. Then the king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate, and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And so his troops will hear about this, and this will create quite a problem. And we will get to that and look at David's grief next time, next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to 
look at this episode to trace out what happens when we, like David, can get our priorities out of order and when our will becomes more important than your will and that we become attached to friends or family, to whether any detail of life, and make that more important than your will. Father, we need to learn to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to put your word first in our lives and to put your will first in our life. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the outworking of this self-indulgence and arrogance on the part of David and to correct that in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.